Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Neil Preston, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey, everyone. Today, my guest is Peter Bernstein. He's composed, orchestrated, and conducted some of the most well-known movies of our time. Ghostbusters and Trading Places are a couple. But there are also other incredible pieces of work like 21 Jump Street and Michael Jackson's Thriller. So we discuss his work in today's episode, but we also talk about his time as a bass player in L.A. As a young musician in the late 60s and early 70s, he was part of that famous Laurel Canyon and Hoot Night Troubadour scene. So he has an interesting perspective on that notable time and many stories to share. So let's get started. Peter, thank you for coming on today. You're very welcome. You have had a storied life, so I'm looking forward to diving into it today. So for all who, who are listening, and you, you correct me if I'm leaving anything out. Okay. But you are a conductor, an orchestrator, a composer, and a musician. Did I leave anything out? Uh, well, I started out life as a rock and roll bass player. I know you did. I know you did. And a bassist. And so much has come from it. But before we even go there, your past works, which include TV, music videos, movies. I mean, your credits include some of the, well, first of all, some of the greatest movies of all time because I'm a big 80s fan. So in terms of movies that you did at that time, Animal House, which I think was 1979, but then there's- As an, as an orchestrator. As an orchestrator, as an orchestrator. But you were part of these incredible movie moments. I was. Ghostbusters, Stripes, Bill Murray's the best, Trading Places. And then since then, you know, Wild Wild West, Blues Brothers 2000. You did Ghostbusters Afterlife recently. So you had your hand in quite a bit. Plus, I mean, Michael Jackson's Thriller video? Come on! <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny about that because at the time, and it's only, I think there's seven minutes of score in it, right? And that came and went in a couple of days, really. And, you know, my father called me, said, I'm going to do this. Please orchestrate it. I said, okay. And you know, the next day I got this stuff and then I did my thing. And two days later, we're in the studio for four hours and that was it. 
And whoever, you know, no one ever thinks, oh yeah, this is gonna be interesting. What is it, 40 years later, whatever it is now? Yeah. You don't think about that. As a matter of fact, I just about a year ago found my original pages uh, from it, which had been moldering in a box. Oh, come on. Yeah. It went by in, you know, three days. Said hi to Michael Jackson in the studio. So I was going to ask, any interactions with Michael? Yeah. Well, um, the director of, of uh, the video, John Landis, mm -hmm. is, a, uh, is a lifelong friend of mine. I mean, we met in high school, junior uh, high school. Maybe wow. Just a geeky kid who liked movies, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're right, though. It's like a day in the life, and you don't even think anything of it how it's going, to, the, the legacy of it, how it's going to affect people decades and decades, you know, down the road. Mostly because you're too busy trying to get it done. I mean, nobody yeah. thinks about that, you know. <laughs> you're not in the middle of the project, like reveling in it, going, this is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> uh, well, no, but <laughs> there have been times when, you know, when I go, well, this is interesting, you know. Yeah. To, to be doing this, but but usually, I mean, Ghostbusters, for instance, was a very tight schedule, and they were mixing the film down the hall. So every time we recorded a a piece, the music editor would snip it out. I mean, of the reel because it was all tape in those days, snip it out of the reel and run it down, you know, to the mixing room as fast as she could go. So you know, it was very much like that, and it was very tense, and there were, uh. How shall I say this? Differences of opinion? Yeah. Uh, Very diplomatic, yeah. To hear those notes, I mean, you know, I'm not going to sing it, <laughs> but it takes me back. I remember it because I remember seeing the commercials on TV, mm -hmm. advertising it. And I was maybe a little young to go see it, but at the same time, it had an impact on me. And I remember people talking about it, the cool right. kids at school or whatever it was. There isn't, I don't feel like there's that, there, there isn't that um, impact these days at all. So, you know, it's incredible for you to be on the ground floor of such amazing pieces of work. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I come following you. Well, I can only imagine what it was like back then. Um, things have changed a lot, but I actually want to go farther back. You know, you mentioned your dad, mm -hmm. who is, you know, the Academy Award winning film composer, Elmer Bernstein. Um, and I guess I want to ask you, is he the one that really fostered this love of music? Gotta be. Well, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I, there was certainly music in the house when I grew up, where I grew up. My mother was also a piano teacher for a time. And so there was music all around. But, you know, what happened to me was when I was 13, I became aware of the Beatles who were just starting and Bob Dylan, who was just becoming electrified. Yeah. And it, it melted my 13-year-old brain. <laughs> so You and every other music-loving teenager at that time. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was in. You know, that's what happened to me. And nothing to do with what my father did, although it was cool and, you know, things like that. But 
what really got me excited was, was that other music. There was a band in my very small junior high school. I mean, my, you know, the, the classes had like 30 or 40 people in them in Oakwood in, in Los Angeles. Ah, okay. And some friends of mine had started a band, which for some reason I wasn't in. And they had a guy playing bass, kind of, who clearly had no idea what he was doing. And I looked at him and went, oh, yeah, I can do that. So I did. That's how I ended up there. And that really, I guess, planted the seed, huh? In terms uh, of you thinking, this is something I might want to do. I wasn't so much what I want to do as what I was. Mm. You know, somebody said, what are you? I would have said, oh, rock and roll baseball. No, you weren't in some little, you know, Midwest town where, oh, no. you know, th there wasn't, maybe that dream wasn't something that, you know, kids would ever think that they'd realize you were in Los Angeles. Well, it's not, so much, it's not so much of a dream as what you think is normal. I was in school with the children of a number of, you know, very top end Hollywood composers. Wow. So, of course, someone's father was nominated for an Academy Award here. <laughs> Didn't that happen everywhere? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently not, but I didn't, I didn't know that until I was much older. Sure, that was your I was, reality. I mean, seriously, I was at the end of my teens when, I, when the horrible realization that most people get up early and go to work all day hit me. I mean, I just had no uh, frame of reference. It's awful, isn't it? <laughs> well, then what was Los Angeles like when, you, you know, I would say, what is it, late 60s or so, being a musician, being out there, what was the scene like for you? Well, I will say that compared with today, it was a lot easier. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of mixing. Um, of course, there, was, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, so everything was done in person at whatever venues or rehearsals or hangouts you were at. So that was very different. There was a different kind of community. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing that you could do in the late 60s and early 70s is survive by playing in local clubs, which I did for a time. Now that's, you know, that's, that's out of the question. But then, you know, we had a we play a few nights here and a few nights there, and it was just enough money to scrape by and keep working on our on our music. Do a recording here or there. Don't even try to understand. Just find a place to make your stand. You take it easy. Well, I'm standing on a corner in Winslow. You know, also in the circle, in the same circles in Los Angeles, 1970, where uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley, who had just come from Texas, mm -hmm. uh, Linda Ronstadt, who had come from uh, Arizona, Tucson, yeah, and Jackson Brown, uh, who would, I guess would be the, the most well-known. And, you know, Linda had had her singles with the Stone Ponies, mm -hmm. uh, but she wasn't, you know, she was kind of struggling, you know, putting out a record now. And then there was also the other, one of the other members of the Stone Ponies, Kenny Edwards, who I was in various bands with in those days. And my original music friend, Andrew Gold, who had a number of hits in the 70s and had a lot to do with Linda's success. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, who else? Wendy Waldman, Carla Bonoff, both not as well known, but have written a lot of songs that a lot of people have heard. And really, when you think about it, it was only for about mm, 10 years or so. I know. But 10 years at that point was my entire adult life. So right. it felt like my whole life. So were you part of that troubadour crowd? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was Monday Absolutely. night, Hootenanny night? Uh, yeah, I did a few. Tell me about that. I mean, this is like such a place in time. And to me, there's just so much magic around it. Now, I know that those Hootenanny nights were, they were kind of a scene, CB scene type thing. Um, yeah, it was a total scene. You never knew who would show up. And, you know, it was always our manager or whoever was shepherding the band would say, yeah, it got us a slot at the Troop tonight. And so we'd all trundle down there and, you know, get up on stage and play for half an hour. Um, you saw a lot of interesting stuff at, at Hoot Night. <laughs> but it was fun and it was a hang. And, um, you know, you were there from eight till two or whatever the hours were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a total scene. And all the people I've just mentioned played there. Mm-hmm. And this was your scene then. You were hanging with these people as they were all up and coming as well, going to their places in Laurel Canyon. Some had come up further than others, but yes. Yeah. And as that was happening and you're hanging out with these people and you're all, you know, yeah, some are a little higher than others, but for the most part, at least all started on the same footing. Are you conscious of the fact that these, these guys are getting so big? Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, that was cool. But on the other <laughs> hand, you know, hanging out. And yeah. and some of these, you know, even post their giant successes, it was still, let's hang. You know, there, it was, that part of it didn't change very much. Except, you know, maybe with Linda, it was harder to go out in public sometimes. Mm-hmm. She was so recognizable. Um, but you know, it, it, people generally wore it pretty well. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And we're back. So from that time, from that that magical era that you were, uh, you know, hanging out in L.A. and having those hootenanny nights, any great memories from some of those guys, the Eagles or Ronstadt oh, or Jackson, whoever it might be? Well, mostly those memories are from my bands doing or from my friends, close friends bands. I remember seeing Linda when the Eagles were still backing her up, but that was at some like weird club fundraiser thing in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite moments with Linda was my then wife and her and Jerry Brown, when she was going out with Jerry Brown, mm-hmm. decided we'd go out to dinner. Oh. So we, we drive out to uh, Musso Franks in Hollywood. We <laughs> And this, I, I think Linda had just been on the cover of Time magazine or, you know, whatever it was. 
I mean, she was, you know, the number one female singer in the rock and roll world in those days. There really wasn't anybody else in the mid-70s. Yeah. And uh, so we walk into Musso Frank's, which was full, and everybody stopped talking. It was, you know, and this is in Hollywood, right? You know, people are used to that kind of stuff, but it was, um, it was, it was pretty amazing and pretty weird too. Sure, to be with that. But you gotta think, Linda and then Governor Jerry Brown, I mean, that is quite a pairing. <laughs> uh, we, we, we did see a lot of them in those days. From someone like me that's looking in, um, I see this shift in the music industry happening from the 60s to 70s. Um, it becomes more, you know, uh, more of a business um, rather than kind of this communal like, hey, man, we're in it for the art. You know, at this point, it's about making money. And I don't know if, you know, Giffen was really the one that like put the uh, <laughs> accelerator on that. But you know, uh, the record companies were always about making money. Sure. It's just the the what's the word the uh, the way it looked became different, you know, mm. and uh, the way they developed artists became different. You know, there's there there used to be a great deal of artist development. So, oh yeah, your first album flop, but a couple more you'll get it. You know mm -hmm. that I don't think that's happening. Well, that stopped happening a while ago, mm -hmm. but um, back then. You know, well, a uh, case in point, Randy Newman. Yeah. Made a number of records that didn't do much of anything. Or Ry Cooter, who barely made any records that did anything anyway, but he was such an obvious talent that why would why would you drop him? You know? Right. Uh, I could say the thing, same thing for James Taylor. These are all Warner Brother acts, by the way, who, um, you know, had a few hits and then not so much for a long time. Mm -hmm. But they, they let him keep making records. And it, for you, how long were you in it before you decided you wanted to do something different? Well, I was a special case. Um, I was always curious about other things. Growing up as I did, I was aware of this whole other musical world out there. Mm -hmm. um, that amongst my friends, only Andrew Gold would have been because his father was a composer as well. Mm -hmm. and, um, and his mother was a singer. And uh, so I was always aware of that. I was aware that there was a lot more to know than, you know, a few blues chords. Yeah. And so I, I, I never really was not in some sort of learning environment, whether it was school or private. Uh, and by and in the uh, about seventy three or four, I got curious about orchestra. And I went to my father and I said, you know, I think I'd like to learn how to do this. I've learned it in school. I knew the ranges of the instruments, but that didn't, doesn't tell you very much. So he said to me, well, fine, go orchestrate something, bring it to me. So I took a, uh, a piece of piano music that I had been practicing and I did that and I brought it to him and he looked at it and I assume <laughs> At least I got an A for effort. I don't know. I don't have the paper anymore. It might have been horrific, but <laughs> it was enough for him to 
guide me a little bit. And a year later, or a few, a few months later, I was doing little bits on some of his films. And a couple of years, years later, this is, we're in the late seventies now, I was the sole orchestrator on Stripes, for instance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, at the same time, I was doing my rock and roll thing. I, I, I produced a number of records in those days. Mm. In fact, some years ago, just by accident, I came across my um, date book from 1984. I, I don't know why I wasn't, like, tired. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Now, if if the bass player role had taken off by some chance, would you have stuck with it? Depends on the context. I mean, there is a purity to being nothing but an instrumentalist, you know, just being able to play. But I've had a number of moments in my career where I'm trying to learn to do something and I'm being taught by someone who is very, very good at it. And I think, oh, you mean I have to be that good? <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> and that dedicated. And you say that. And I don't know if you're referring to Carol Kay. Uh, uh, no, Mark I'm not. Crew. No, no. Actually, what Carol did was very accessible to me. Yes, I, I took lessons from, from Carol Kay for a couple of years. She was great. I didn't. Amazing. Yeah, well, you know, some of these, when I was a bass player doing sessions for films or television, I was playing next to these incredible people, which, of course, I didn't appreciate at yeah. all. Wrecking crew people. I thought Tommy Tedesco was cool. But, um, <laughs> no Earl perspective Palmer, yet. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, I didn't, or Earl Palmer or people like that, but I, I didn't have the perspective. I mean, I was, you know, barely 20. And Carol was, um, you know, probably 20 years older than me. And she had a very soft Southern accent, like from the DC area, like you'd hear. And she would say, okay, now we're gonna play a little boogaloo. And uh, so that was my lesson with Carol. I didn't play her style at all. So it was really, um, very expanding to take those lessons with her. How did that even come about? How did you even get the opportunity to take those? Oh, through my lessons? father. Just he through your Because he played dates with her, but I, I, was, I wasn't her only student at all. Sure. Okay. She had many. Oh, no. We'd go, there'd be like four people at a time in her house, we're all with our bass guitars and, you know, playing whatever it was. I did learn some really good stuff from her, though. And when you decided to finally move on and, you know, stop for your own sanity, I'm sure, stop playing bass. I mean, was there some, you know, regrets? Do you miss it? Did you miss it? Oh. I know you're back at it, but. <laughs> I am. I still play, but I'm the only person foolish enough to pay myself to play for them. No, if you know what, if somebody says, if I say I'm a musician and somebody says, oh, what's your instrument? You know, the, or what do you do? The very first 
reaction. It's primal, right? I'm a bass player. And then I have to go, I edit that and go, well, I do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But primarily a bass player. Well, you know, it's what you did when you were, I mean, I was a child, right? I was 14. So with attitude, I might add. <laughs> and uh, that, but that's the primal reaction. I'm sure. And you know, it's funny because I've talked to a lot of guests about this, that seminal moment in 1964, when most of them decided that they wanted to be a musician, you and know, who, maybe and who were they hearing? They were hearing the Beatles. They were all hearing the Beatles. And I remember even, you know, uh, when I had Henry Diltz on, he said, you know, he was with the Modern Four Quartet at the time right. and they were touring and they were watching them on Ed Sullivan. And Henry says, I mean, we're looking at each other and going, well, what the hell are we singing about the ox driver for? We got to play some rock and roll. <laughs> well, I had, okay, I also had a strong folk background at the same time. My parents, being old New York lefties, were very into the folk music of the time, mm -hmm. which was, um, uh, you know, Pete Seeger, the Weavers, all those proto-folk people. So that was in the mix as well. And I listened to those as a child. They were played for me by my parents. But, you know, with the Beatles, it wasn't so much the, the rush of seeing them for the first time, just as you're becoming an adolescent. You know, it was all, it was just perfect timing for me. But it was the journey as well. And the journey of the Beatles from 1963 to 1967, when they became some other band entirely and that was my you know 13 to 17 Four when i became someone else entirely that was a journey right yeah and along with that journey i was there was also bob dylan who was you know inventing a whole other kind of popular music right right and rock itself was just coming on the scene i mean so you get rock, you get folk, you get folk rock together, but then you have all these British invasion bands that are coming in right. and they're creating their own sound. And there was just nothing like it. If you're going to compare it to the rock of the fifties and whatnot. Um, well, there was, there was folk rock and the other band was that we really into was the birds. Oh, of course. of course. And, uh, you know, my friend, Andrew Gold, you know, by the time we were 15, yeah, 15, he was doing Jim McGuinn uh, spotlessly. I mean, it was kind of amazing, actually. And uh, we all struggled to keep up. You know, it, it, it's interesting to me back then, these bands that were so popular, like the Birds, had such a short shelf life. And I maybe I shouldn't say shelf life, but just their career. The Birds were together, at least, you know, the classic version that included Crosby was probably three, two, three years. But that, that was, you know, that was their whole adult life too, at that point, you know, Buffalo Springfield. I mean, it, you know, and these were huge, huge bands. What I should mentioned what I should touch on that we didn't was seeing all these people in the 60s at the whiskey please do the hollow blue <laughs> and the birds the buffalo springfield iron butterfly who were everywhere 
Uh, Were there one uh, hit in Agata de Vida? <laughs> they were very popular on the strip. What can I tell you? Uh, what was the other band? Oh, the split off from Iron Butterfly and Rhinoceros. Um, uh, who else? I mean, well, I mean, I saw Cream there. I saw Cream in England in 1967 as well, coincidentally. I was, yes, I was in London in the summer of 67. I was sent to have an educational experience sure. at, a dormitory, at a dormitory. And, oh, I got an education, all right. Um, yeah, that's a relative term. <laughs> I know. I learned how to do all the fun stuff. But we also went to the Windsor Jazz Festival which oh. was no longer a jazz festival in those days. And it was Cream and Arthur Brown and 10 years after. And um, I don't know if Ainsley Dunbar rings a bell with you, but it was a lot of, you know, British bands of that era. So what was it like walking into, say, the whiskey to see the birds play at that time? You know, even that, that felt special. It did. Because they were very special to me. Oh, Big Brother. Saw Big Brother there. Big Brother in the Holding Company? Yeah. Um, uh, With Janice? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we were young, right? So it would be like this. There'd be a battle of the bands at the Hullabaloo, I think it was called. And then, and then later it became the Aquarius Theater and then uh, the uh, Nickelodeon Theater. Oh, yeah, yeah. And previously it had been the Moulin Rouge, you know, uh, in a dinner club in Los Angeles. And it was, I mean, none of us could drive. So it was like somebody's parent or housekeeper who would drive <laughs> us back in this. No, seriously, would drive us in the station wagon. We'd load our stuff out, uh, you know, do our battle with the bands. You know, hey, mom, can you pick me up? And that was it. That's how, it, well, I mean, we, we couldn't hitch, not with, not with the amp. That's too funny. Yeah, she, you know, um, I had also to Pamela DeBar as well on the show. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, she's an L.A. girl as well. And she was she grew up in the Valley and she would talk about getting rides to the Sunset Strip from like a parent or whatever it is. And just well, yeah, kind of you, you had off. to get there. <laughs> Oddly, I missed the uh, I missed the riot. I wasn't there that day uh, or that night, whatever it was. However, awesome. I went to the benefit concert they had out in the San Fernando Valley a few days later at the uh, most of theater that's no longer exists. And that was that lineup was the birds and Kumasakela, oddly, oh. and the mothers uh -huh. and um, the doors. Oh, yeah, the doors. You see the doors around back in those days. You'd see the doors around, you'd see them play, or you'd see Jim stumbling around Sunset Boulevard? <laughs> I'd see him stumbling around on stage. Oh but back then, I would say probably on the Sunset Strip, they said there was probably somewhere within that 1.7 stretch, 25 plus clubs for kids to go to and play out, say, circa 68, 69. I can think of, well, Gazzari's, which is long gone. Um, I, yeah, I played in Gazzari's. I played in the Whiskey. I played in the Roxy. Um, I don't know. I was done before Viper Room showed up. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then later on, during the new wave era of, you know, 1980, 70, 78, 79, 80, 81, there was another explosion of clubs in Los Angeles. Yeah. Many, many places where we all played Wong's, Madame Wong's, Madame mm -hmm. Wong's West. My best friend was the booker there. I mean, my current best friend was the booker there. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and uh, you know, there are all these places, I can't remember half of their names anymore, but there was an explosion of venues you could, you know, you could go play at. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, and that scene, I mean, LA again, became the epicenter of music and what every other band was emulated from about 81, 82, like when Motley Crue hit the scene and some of these yeah. other, you know, heavy metal bands or hair bands, as you want to call them, which I know they don't like to be called, but everything was changing. And I feel like that was another, and I'll use this word again, a very magical time. You know, the strip was the place to be. It was where you went to find a record deal. Um, and they yes, tell these stories. Uh, who was I talking to? A friend of mine runs tours on the Sunset Strip. And he said, the record labels sometimes would have offices right across the street from say the rainbow or the Roxy because, or even the whiskey, because you get these kids that just played a set, they might be drunk off their minds and a little bit more susceptible to maybe inking a deal. <laughs> I actually, oh yeah. Well, occasionally the, one of the famous stories is, uh, uh, Van Halen being signed by uh, their producer, Teddy Templeman, but being signed by Teddy Templeman when he went to the whiskey and saw the line around the block. Went, oh yeah, they're signed. <laughs> that was In in nineteen in the late middle to in the middle eighties, a few things happened. I'd been composing, mm -hmm. and I got a job doing a movie called The Ewok Adventure for Lucasfilm. And um, that was a big deal at the time. I also did its sequel. It was it was a TV broadcast, but it I was remember. Very, yeah, it was a very big deal. I was the first guy not named John Williams to, to do something. <laughs> now, now it's like the uh, what the, the black sheep of the Star Wars family. But at the time, it felt like a big deal, and um, and there was a connection there too because Linda Ronstadt was dating George Lucas at the time. So I don't think I knew that. Wow. Yeah. So she was around. Um, and then a couple of years after that, or not even, um, one of my rock and roll mates was now a, uh, associate producer, I think on a show that was about to be made called 21 Jump Street. And I think I've heard he, of it. I yeah. He introduced <laughs> producer. And so. I ended up doing that job. So that was a really um, fruitful couple of years that really, you know, had a big impact in my career going forward. I mean, like I said, your your list of credits are, are just incredible. Um, you know, these 
I don't, I, I wouldn't say it's the same situation now with streaming and all of that and so many outlets to receive entertainment. But back then, seeing a movie could be life-changing. It was just a yeah, much smaller set of things to choose from. To choose from. And you went and saw that latest movie. And if it was a great movie, it affected everybody. And, in, you know. In, yeah. In 1984, I orchestrated Ghostbusters and also wrote the uh, score for the Ewok adventure. So that was a, you know, a seminal year for me. Well, speaking of today, though. What is it that you're doing right now? What's coming up for you? What have you just finished? I mean, okay. I know you did Ghostbusters Afterlife. That was 2020. I feel like the world stopped in 2020 and there's just been nothing. Kind of weird. <laughs> well, I, I took an orchestration job. I mean, Ghostbusters Afterlife, I was kind of a score consultant, whatever that means, which was me giving my opinion on whatever people were asking me that had to that related to the earlier film. And you know, looking over the orchestrations and the score and suggesting this and that. Uh, I just took, I just a few months ago finished an orchestration job with the same composer for a film called The Atom Project. It's out now. Yeah. Yeah, with um Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah. I orchestrated that. And then uh I've started composing with my sister, which is really fun. Really? So she was in the music business as well. Yes. She's about 20 years younger than me, half sister. And, uh, but we share a father. Mm -hmm. And she had the job orchestrating for him a few years after I left. So she has somewhat of the same background. It's really fun because it's a, you know, it's a point of view that I don't have. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's always interesting and it's fun to do this family thing. I should add that uh, in 2013, I believe it was, I was invited to a film music festival in Spain where they were doing a bunch of my father's works and what I care to conduct. Um, now, nice. conducting, conducting was something you learned to do as a matter of course when I was learning to be a composer because you had to. Uh, I didn't use it much <clears throat> once uh, computers came along, but that led to a second career as a conductor, which has been going since then. So since uh, for the last few years, I've done, God, I don't know how many concerts of Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters with the score performed live. So How cool is that? That's been fun. Did you do this at the Hollywood Bowl? No, okay. I did not do it at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, and That's then I, next. <laughs> what I did uh, a couple of years ago, I did The Great Escape, same thing. What a movie. And uh, so, yeah, those, those are really fun. Conducting is really fun. It's very low pressure. Occasionally, they'll call you maestro, which is not bad. <laughs> yeah. And That's would, a great title. I would never mistake myself for a great conductor, but I do know how to how to make it happen. So it's been a it's been a really nice thing to do at this stage for my career. I think, you know, and Ghostbusters every Halloween, right? There's uh it, it is. It's it's the movie. <laughs> I think there are 
I mean, when I last checked, I think there were 10 performances booked in October. Incredible. Yeah. So anything you haven't done that you still want to do? In music? Any. Uh, I would assume music, but maybe not. Yeah, I'd like to play bass again. Like I said, there is a certain purity there that um, we're trying to also describe as um, immediacy, right? It's right there. It's happening now. It's never going to happen that way again. Composing is not like that. Uh, nothing is like, you know, playing in that way. So I doubt an opportunity will arise, but if it, if it did, I would do it. Uh, look at your life. <laughs> Good point. Conducting is, is close. You know, I, I mean, it is back to my roots as a performer of doing something live. Mm -hmm. So it's not just playing bass. It's being out there. It's playing live to an audience, feeling that energy. Well, you know, conducting Ghostbusters is kind of unique because I'm looking at the screen ahead of me. And the audience is laughing and hooting and hollering behind me. It's not the usual deportment at a uh, orchestra concert. So that's really fun. I'm sure. I'm sure. But when you're playing bass and you're standing there looking at the audience, receiving the music that you're playing, mm -hmm. there's probably nothing like that feeling. Uh, no, there isn't. There isn't. I have a feeling a year from now you're going to be saying, <laughs> I'm you back know, out on the road. <laughs> When I was in my last band, um, and before we got our deal and things got complicated, and you know, you get a bunch of guys in their 20s in a room together, a little, little too much free floating testosterone sometimes, you know. Um, but when we were just developing our scene, and the, you know, we knew we were good. And we could see the effect on the crowd. And we could get up there and perform without wondering if we were good. We knew we were good. That was pretty unique. I have not really had that feeling since. Yeah. I have to say it's different now because in the late 70s, you know, it was still coming out of the punk era. And my band was mis you know the people thought are they punk are they new wave what's going on here so we got a really mixed audience and it, it nowadays people just want to get off then it was a different scene you know it was somewhat confrontational it was the audience saying all right show us what you've got wow. um that was that was right after that that phase I described where we knew we were good and it was all cool. After that, it turned into something a little different. But the, uh, the scene was different. You know, there was a big rebellion in music. The punk scene was a big rebellion against what happened before. Yeah. New Wave was a little different. That was just more fun. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was somewhat confusing. I mean, the mega bands were, were there and it didn't affect them at all. Yeah, but what was happening below them? Yeah, there was a lot of transition. The record companies were trying to figure it out, mostly unsuccessfully. Mm -hmm. 
you know, a lot of a lot of new wave bands, so-called new wave bands, got signed in Los Angeles, and almost none of them uh, broke through. I mean, there are a couple of enduring hits, uh, my Sharona. Um, that's what I like about you, you know, enduring hits from that era. Yeah. But um, wasn't long lasting. You know, there was very little, very few people came out of that with, uh, you know, an, an enduring career. Mm-hmm. Yes, but there are those people that continually come up with new music. Those are the people that I'm interested in. You know, how does this person develop their career once they're no longer the newest, hippest thing? You know, right. what, what's really going on? Change for the times. Easier to it's easy to be the newest hippest thing. I was that for a minute or three on a couple of occasions, you know, both in the rock and roll world and the scoring world. Yeah. That's the easy part. The hard part is what comes after. Mm -hmm. I can say the same thing for my father. He was the newest hippest thing for a while in the late 50s, early 60s. And then he had to reinvent himself, which he was very, very good at. Uh, three or four times. Mm. And he had a long, well, I got to tell you, this is going to, this is very depressing, but I think my career is about to be longer than his. Maybe not at the same level of success, but still. It's funny, you can have Academy Awards under your belt, but you're only as good as your next thing, you know, or your latest thing. I think it was Maurice Jarre that used to say, he hated getting Academy Awards because it meant he wasn't going to work for a year and a half or something like that. Really? Yeah. Because that's just the nature of the industry? No, maybe it was the nature of his arc. But that's, you know, that's what it was like for him. But no, you have to, um, you know, the endurance is the, uh, is the interesting part. Yeah. And of all my friends, we all started out in the 70s together. I can think of, well, I guess the Eagles still tour. Jackson's still around in some yeah. form. He's still touring, yeah. Um, Wendy Wallman, Carla Bonoff, who I mentioned, still mm-hmm. doing it. But Carla in particular has turned into a road warrior. Uh, Wendy's still around. But that's just a few. It's just a few. I don't know what it would be like for somebody in their 20s now. Very, very different. I don't know how you get noticed. I don't either. A clue. I don't either. There's so many ways to put out your music, but you're literally just this drop in the bucket. You know? It's got to be hard. I don't know. Well, for us, it was easy. You go down to the troupe and and hope some label reps are in the audience seriously seriously the stories i've heard it's like well wait a second you played for a week and then you now you've got a record deal it's it's unbelievable to me how that was back then those were the days (laughs) peter this has been so much fun thank you so much for coming on and reminiscing with me and talking to me about what might be next i'm excited to see what what's next for you (laughs) me too (laughs) That's how life should be. That's how life should be.
All right. A big thank you to Peter Bernstein for coming on. Now, I've provided a link to his website in the show notes, so definitely take a look. I mean, not only at all of his impressive credits, but also what's on the horizon for him as well. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you at the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.